Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight. And our topic is More Than Meets the Eye, Part 1. And uh, what we're talking about is there are various different things in our lives, in our physical lives, um, where there are things that you can see on the surface and then there are other things that you can't see below the surface. But experts can tell you things about what's below the surface on the basis of what they can see on the outside. Uh, an example would be uh, going to a doctor where a doctor, you know, some doctors can just look in your eyes and they can see what's going on with your health because of the state of your eyes. So they, they can't literally, you know, just with their physical eyes, see your kidneys or your brain function or something like that but they can see in your eyes how you're doing because there's a manifestation on the surface of what's going on under the hood, which is very handy, you know, because you, you need to have that information. Otherwise, you know, what would you get? So many years, it's amazing to think about medicine in ancient times where you don't have scanners, you know, like, wow, you just really, all you've got is the outside to go by. Another example might be, um, Geology, and I don't know anything about geology, so it'll be easy to make up examples in this field. Um, but I know that it's true that there are, aren't there even satellites that can tell you where there might be oil deposits and things like that because they can just read the surface of the earth and they can see, oh, you know, or geologists who, who go to something like the Grand Canyon, they can see, oh, those striations, you know, that, that means this used to be underwater, or you can tell that this, you know, and underneath there, this would be like this or that would be like that. Uh, you can tell from the surface what lies underneath. So even though you can't see it and you know there's something under there that's mysterious, if you, if you learn enough, there are clues. It amazes me the way that the Lord has created reality where it seems like there's a rule. As much as we as a human race just love deception, you know, and we would love it so much if we could just never irradiate any signal of what we're doing. The fact is the Lord's universe is a place where just everything sort of cries out the information about what's going on. It just radiates out, you know, and the surfaces of things tell you what's on the inside of things. Is this true of scripture? There's a big debate and, uh, you know, and, and mostly negative for the last hundred years plus about whether there's anything under the surface so you've got a surface, so to speak, in the text of Scripture. Are there any clues? Hi there, come on in. Any clues on the surface that there's more under the surface than meets the eye? That's what our topic is, more than meets the eye. Are there little clues? So for the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at suggestions right on the surface of Scripture that suggest that there's something more than meets the eye. Emanuel Swedenborg says very clearly, he said, oh, you know, there's a ton of stuff in there. We've been talking about the last few weeks. Uh, there are layers and layers of things in there. But, okay, so the geologist said, oh, that mound there that you see, that means that there's this and there used to be a river that came around here, you know. Uh, so, okay, the expert told us that. Can we see it for ourselves? You know, can we go into Scripture and see for ourselves that there are signs on that surface that there's something more behind there. All right, so that's what we're going to be looking at this evening, good friends. Now that you're all pleasantly seated, can I invite you to stand up for an opening prayer? <clears throat> Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together in your name. We're opening up the pages of your word, seeking to know you, Lord, praying particularly to see those signs that there's something underneath the surface of Scripture. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. Amen. Amen. Sending love to those of you who are out there online and getting the audio. And uh, great pleasure to be with you. More than meets the eye. Uh, are there signs in Scripture that there's more than meets the eye in there. 
Uh, let's just start. I've got sort of a random list. Uh, let's start all the way in Genesis at the beginning of Scripture here. This is kind of, you know, I, I'm, I'm the kind of person, you wouldn't know it, friends. I, I'm the kind of person, I really don't like repetition. I just think if you said something once and then 10 years later you said something approximately the same thing. Oh, no, I'm, I'm boring them. But, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to be more like Scripture, which is not the least bit afraid of amazing degrees of repetition. Uh, so some of these things some of you may have heard before, but it's fun to put them together in one, one place like this. So one sign to me that there might be something more going on with Scripture than meets the eye is the fact that a number of times in Scripture the same story is told twice, and it comes out differently both times. In other words, I approach this somewhat. Uh, some of you know that I'm, I'm an editor, and uh, so I approach this as an editor, and I just think, are there things in the text that just the least amount of editorial attention might have straightened out, and somehow they're still in there, like the telling of a story two different ways, two times over. And creation story has one of these. If you look in Genesis chapter 1, you're probably familiar, good friends, with the days of creation, all these things that happen. And uh, notice at the end of chapter 1 there, how are human beings created? Very, very important point. You know, how are they created? So look at chapter 1, verse 26. What does God say there? Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth that over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Okay, now what happened before this in the story? was that you had the creation of light, you have the separation of the waters, then you've got the um, plants that come out, uh, then you get the sun and the moon that are created, and we'll talk another time about the fact that the sun comes way later than light, and somehow grass is growing on the basis of that light, even though there's no sun. Try not to think about that right now, but uh, there are birds, and there are animals, and then the last thing that's created are the humans. And when are women created in relation to men? Same the same time. instant. Boom, male and female, right? Bang, right? Same moment. Okay, then you keep reading down this story. It ends in chapter 1. It goes into chapter 2. And it says in, uh, you know, let's read verse 3 there, two, verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Yes, as an editor, you could have used another he there instead of saying God, but, you know, that's fine. Uh, then verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Oh, it is? I thought that's what we got in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, and so we already heard a whole creation story. Have we started again? Yes, we have. This is the create. You know, that to me, one of the early morning. You know, the geologist looks and he says, "Oh, that crack, this shape here. That means there's something else going on in the text." If you got something that an editor would have fixed, two creation stories should have been fixed. Somebody should have caught it in 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 the room back there with the shades on and all, you know somebody should have caught it. If it's still in there, maybe it's there because there's a different layer of meaning than just a literal account in which we're already not making much sense. Go on. So, read on. Verse 5, maybe. Uh, this is the history, I'm going to start at 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Yes. Before any plant... And isn't it interesting? You notice it's the heaven and the earth, but then it says the earth and the heavens. Probably meaningless detail, right? Go on. Before any plant of the field was in the earth... And okay, and the plants were created on day three. And before any her herb of the field had grown. 
And they had already started growing in day three. We got them in chapter one. Go on. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. Wow. So somehow everything that happened in chapter one happened with no rain. And there was... You know, all these plants, animals, birds, all this, you know, there's, there's oceans, there's clouds, no rain. Interesting. Okay. And there was no man to till the ground. Except for the one that was created back in 1 verse 27, you mean? <laughs> there, was, there was no, there's no humans, you know? Go on. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Now that's not how it happened in chapter 1, but okay, fine. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Yes, and then this whole story unfolds. You hear about the garden, there are the rivers. The Lord put the man in the garden in verse 15 to keep it and tells him what to eat. And then in verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. He's not alone. There was female created all the way back in 127. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Which and was created in day six already. And every bird of the air. Day five, thank and, you. And brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Hmm. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Hmm. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Except the one who was created in 127. Go on. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Mm. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. So this is how women are created, and then they're created after. So man is created before all the animals. These are two, they're not only two stories, they're two completely incompatible stories about how creation happened. One has, you get the, get the plants, get the animals, get male and female at the same time. Then the next one has man created first before there are any plants. And then plant, and then you create animals and all this stuff, but he's still lonely. So you create woman. It's a completely different story. Uh, so, um, now there have been amazing theories that have come up about how this is the case. There's been this whole theory that there was one whole creation story that used the, the name Yahweh or Jehovah and another whole one that was about God and that's why there are two because there are two different gods and then some third editor sat down wove them together and all this stuff. Oh, okay, fine. But uh, it acknowledges at least that there's a problem because you have two creation stories that are incompatible with each other. Um, but to me, no. You see, it, it's interesting that this is the same kind of argument that atheists make against literalists. They say, look, your Bible's crazy, you know? I sound exactly like them, but I'm coming from a different point of view, which is that, oh no, I think that area there and that crack that you see and those that striation in the rock and everything that's because there's something underneath there i don't have time tonight to go into what all is in there but it has to do with those seven this is a this is a real story there are two creations the first one is the creation of your mind and it goes like this second one is the creation of your heart that's why the name of god changes and it shows you how the and the heart is created in a different way spiritually than the mind is. I'm talking about your regeneration, your rebirth. And so that's why you have two stories. That's why they're told in a different order. You know, it's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, to me, it's sort of a little hint, hey, you know, there's, there's a deeper meaning. There's something on the surface there that shows a different meaning. Another story, admittedly, sort of a trivial one, not a very central story, that is given twice and is completely incompatible is, uh, you may not have heard of it, it's the thing called Christmas. Um, it's the, the one where Jesus was born. They're two completely different stories that happened at 12 years apart from each other. They're, they're quite incompatible. We studied that in Bible study at another time. It's just another example. You know, really crucial story, and they can't get their, their story straight. 
An editor should have fixed that. Why is it that way? It's because I think, again, that what Matthew says about creation is about a different side of creation. You know, and it echoes, and once you start to look at it, it becomes magnificently beautiful. Two creation stories, two creation of Jesus stories, you know? It's fantastic, you know? Uh, you know, it, 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 there's a beauty to it and an order, but it's not the order of, hey, I do nothing but make literal sense. You know, that's not what this book is about to me. Let's look at a second example. Go to Genesis chapter 9. This is not a second example of that. I'm just picking different things, okay? So number one, same story told twice. When you see that, go, oh, maybe there's an inner meaning. Genesis chapter 9. Let's start at verse 8, shall we? Uh, this one, I'll just give it away right now. This one is called incredible repetition, okay? 9 verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, and to his sons with him, saying, "As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you." Okay, so you would be forgiven for thinking that what he's saying is, "I'm going to establish a covenant with you." Okay, go on. <laughs> and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, all of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Interesting, we just had creation story, now there's another, there's sort of a destruction story, kind of a recreation story here, and the Lord is not only making a covenant with humans, but with all the animals. Go on. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Okay, yep, you said that already, but that's good, go on. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Okay, that's really two ways of saying the same thing, isn't it? Go on. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. A well-loved passage. Go on. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Okay. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. I'm not sure what you're saying. Could you run over it again in verse 16? <laughs> the rainbow shall be in the cloud. Oh, I see. So you're saying the rainbow will be in the cloud. Okay. And I will look on it. Oh, to, you'll look on it. Okay. To remember the everlasting oh, the covenant. Ever and what is that covenant again? I've forgotten already. Between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Okay. And so in case Noah needed clarification, verse 17. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, you know, an editor might have cleaned that up. You could probably get that down to one verse if you really worked at it. Uh, what is all that repetition doing there if it's just a literal text? Like it just, the, the, the only options to me that really seem viable are either it is a really dumb book or there's a greater depth in there. And one of the things that you really have to explain, if it's a dumb book, and there are millions of people who think it's a really dumb book, the problem, that's what's difficult to explain about that is why it sells 800 million copies a year, year after year after year after year. What is everybody doing buying 800 million copies of a dumb book every year? There's a sense in the human spirit that there's something in here, you know? And for all the enlightenment, all the sophistication and science and everything like that, it's still, we still haven't convinced each other to stop buying this book. There's something here. And so what, what is going on? So it's hard to really maintain the argument that it's just a dumb book that should have been forgotten about long ago. I think what keeps it going is the sense that there's a life in there, there's, there's something meaningful that people are hungry for. Now, in that very chapter, let's look down at uh, the very next verse, verse 18. Let's keep going. This is another example of a different thing, which I might call generation confusion. Or per, you know, uh, Let's just see how this works out. 
Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So you might think based on that, that the sons of Noah were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in fact, they were. And, and Ham was the father of Canaan. Oh, okay. So if you had to draw a family chart, you'd have Noah at the top, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then Ham, the middle one, has a son named Canaan. The grandson is Canaan. Shem, Ham, Japheth, Canaan. Canaan's the, the, the third generation. Okay, let's go. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Mm. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham... And Ham, who was Ham again, dear text? The father of Canaan. Oh, Ham, the father of Canaan. Okay, so he was the middle one. He was the father of Canaan. Saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. That would be Shem and Japheth. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Yeah, little repetitious, but good, good story. Go on. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew, that his, and knew what his younger son had done to him. Now wait, there's Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So really, Ham is the middle one that he's upset with, isn't he? And so he knew what his younger son had done to him. And what does he say? Then he said, Cursed be Canaan. Now wait a minute. Who was Canaan? The son of Ham. He's a great, did he have anything to do with this story? Was he even in the story? No, he's not even in the story. Noah wakes up and he says, oh, that rotten Canaan. This is grand, you know, what is good? And, and the text doesn't say, poor old Noah, I guess he was still a little hungover. So it doesn't say anything like that. Um, go on. A servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Canaan? Canaan's not the problem. Go on. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. No mention of Ham. Like, hello, Ham just ceases to exist. And there's, you know, so all I'm saying is, you know, see, I, I don't know what it is, friends. Sometimes, like you, you know, maybe it's from childhood or something, you file into church, you sit down, the minister starts droning and intoning, you go into sort of a sweet meditation and the words just wash over you, you know, doesn't really matter what they mean, they just wash over you. And, and you, you really, you left your thinking capacity outside the building. Um, uh, if you have your thinking cap on when you read this stuff, you go, wait a minute, you know? I mean, this is all in chapter 9 of Genesis. We've gone, wait a minute, in a major way twice. There was that whole repetition thing that went on, and then there's Noah getting really angry and cursing. It seems so grossly unfair. Like Cain was like, what? You know, <laughs> I wasn't even there. Ham disappears. Now, Swedenborg explains, oh no, it's very meaningful what, Canaan, what Canaan's meaning. That's why, see? A little sign that there's an inner meaning under there because if it was just a literal text, hello, shouldn't somebody come along and fix that? You know, it should say ham or something, but, but it doesn't. It says Canaan. Just little examples, but they, but they add up if you see what I mean. Okay, let's go to Exodus chapter 4. See what we got there. So turn to the right. I've tried to align these so we just sort of swing through. Looking at different, just different examples. Um... Okay, so there's this wonderful story about Moses and the burning bush that happens in chapter 3. And Moses is called by God to set his, you know, set his people go. And uh, then in chapter 4, Moses says, I won't believe him. God gives him a sign and so on. And then Moses pleads that he's not eloquent. He can't speak. And so the Lord says, okay, I'll give you someone else who can be your spokesperson. And then Moses goes and talks with his, with his father-in-law. Uh, he says, you know, he's going to go back and he's going to lead the, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And um, so all of that makes perfect sense down to verse 23. And then we get verse 24. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment 
that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. This is Moses. This is the guy who's just been called. In the next verse, God meets him and wants to kill him. Okay. Then Zipporah, Zipporah is his wife. took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go, meaning God let Moses go. We have no way of knowing. Then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Okay, verse 27. <laughs> and the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And then we're back in happy land and we go proceed to the, you know, what the heck was that? Three verses from hell in the middle of it. You know, did we just step into a horror movie or something? God tries to kill him. There's this circumcision, the throwing of this bloody foreskin, you know, and the repetition of these phrases. And then, and then the happy music starts and we're all going to go to the land of, you know. And there's no... So all I'm saying is when there's bizarre little things that, that have no earthly reason for being in the text. They don't move the story forward. They're never referred to again. Let us never speak of this again. You know, <laughs> it's, just, it's just gone. That is a very meaningful story in the inner meaning. And Swedenborg talks about what it means, what it's doing there, the fact that it's bizarre and everything. I love Swedenborg's explanation because he'll wade into stuff. No, nobody wants, yeah, I never heard that in church. You know, I just haven't heard anybody preach on that particular passage. I don't know, you know, doesn't make the top 10 list of, you know, favorite things that people want to go to a family service and hear about. And um, it's a sign that there's something else going on underneath the text, because otherwise, like, what on earth is the Bible? You know, what is this book doing? It's so bizarre. Oh, let's go to, now this may not be very compelling, but let's go to the right. Okay, so you go through the five books of Moses ends with Deuteronomy there, then Joshua, Judges, Ruth. I want to get into 1 Samuel to chapter 17. I don't know how it'll come across in your translation there, dear reader. Okay. Uh, but in mine, it's just, it's just a subtle sort of a detail. Uh, but look at, this is the famous story of David and Goliath. Look at verse 49 in 1 Samuel 17. So David's coming. David's this shepherd boy. He's coming out to meet this giant, you know, uh, who's been taunting the children of Israel for weeks. And here's the actual moment of Goliath's death. Okay. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. Now, if that's all I heard... You know, I don't want to overpress this point. It's sort of a minor point. But uh, if that's all I heard, I would feel like, okay, I saw Goliath die. Because a stone went into his head. He fell down. You know, that's, that's the end, end of that story. So, verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Okay. But there was no... Now, it's just, you know what I mean? Uh, Okay, you could say, oh, it's just a simple recap. But in a literal sense, we kind of have the death twice. You know, the stone goes in, he sinks on his face, and then you tell the story again. Okay, so you could say, so just means he's, he's reiterating it. But there are other examples where you'll get stories twice that are really just one thing. It's a little mini version of the two creation stories. You know, just a little mini version. We won't dwell on that too long. Uh, but it came to mind as an interesting example. Where is my number six? Okay, oh, this is fun. Second Kings, turn to the right, go through Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings. We go into this history. Now, this is the most historical part of Scripture. It's all about the kings. And it's, it's named after the kings, First and Second Kings. And what's going on in the kings is that you're always told, well, this is the new king, and was he good or was he bad? How many years was he the king? And then who else was on the throne, and who was he a son of? By this point, the kingdom had split into two pieces. There was the northern kingdom called Israel or Samaria, and the southern kingdom called Judah. 
I want to go to chapter 11 here. We're sort of going to skim through a few different things here. Um, look at the beginning of chapter 11 there because part of what I'm driving at here, um, I, don't, I don't know how to most effectively get this across, but it turns out that there are, in this historical documented account, there are three kings of the south, and they're named Joash, Joram, and Ahaziah, I believe. And, but jo Joash can be called Jehoash, J-E-H, and Joram can be called Jehoram, and uh, Ahaziah also goes by several different names, Uzziah, Amaziah, Jehoahaz, I think are all, all the same person. And um, okay, so there are three people in one of the kingdoms who are called Joash or Jehoash, Joram or Jehoram, and Ahaziah are all kinds of different names. As it turns out, there are at the same time three kings in the southern kingdom, one of whom is named Joash or Jehoash, another one is named Joram or Jehoram, and the other one is named Ahaziah or Amaziah or Uzziah, you know, uh, it, it's beyond, I don't know, it's beyond incredible to me. Uh, so I'll try to show it to you a little bit here. Look at that first verse. In chapter 11? In chapter 11. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. Okay, and Ahaziah was a king of the southern kingdom. Okay. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram. Joram was also in the southern kingdom. Sister of Ahaziah. In the southern kingdom. Took Joash. In the, the southern kingdom. The son of Ahaziah. In the southern kingdom. <laughs> and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered. And they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah so that he was not killed. Okay. And let's go over to verse 21 in 11, the very end of uh, 11. Je Jehoash was seven years old when he became king. Okay, now he used to be Joash in verse 2, but he's become Jehoash here. Mm -hmm. uh, somehow, when you get seven years old, you get another syllable, which is nice. Uh, and look at 12, verse 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. That's right. And so you see in verse 4, there's a mention of Jehoash. This is all the southern one. In verse 6, Jehoash. Jehoash in verse 7. Over in verse 18, Jehoash, king of Judah. And who else does it mention in verse 18 there? And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his fathers, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, kings of Judah. Kings had, of Judah. They're all kings of the southern kingdom. That's right. Had dedicated and his own sacred things and all the gold found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and in the king's house and sent them to Hazael, king of Syria. Then he went away from Jerusalem. Okay. And then you hear about the death of, oh, and guess what? When he's dying, what is his name now? Joash. Uh, oh, he turns back into Joash when he dies. So he was Joash when he was young. He becomes Jehoash for a while. When he dies, he goes back to being Joash. Now, any entry-level editor should have fixed that, like immediately. You got a problem here in your story because your characters' names are changing all the time. You should fix that. Okay, uh, now we've got Joash down here. Uh, and who is he the son of in 13 verse 1? the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah. Okay. Then who? Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 17 years. Okay. And in verse 
Okay, nine, we get a reiteration of that again. So Jehoaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, this is the other, this is not the other, jo, this is the other Joash. This is the one in the northern kingdom. We already had our Joash in the southern kingdom. This is a new one who's Joash in the northern kingdom. Okay, go on. In the, third, in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, Jehoahaz, thank you, sorry, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. So they're both named in the same verse, but one of them gets to be Joash and the other one Jehoash, even though Jehoash was also called Joash many times. I'm the only one who finds this interesting, but that's fine. <laughs> um, they, and then look, then Joash dies in chapter, I mean, verse 12, verse 13. And, uh, and Joash is mentioned in verse 14 again. And then down in verse 25. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz. Now wait, this is Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, who is now Jehoash. So the <laughs> southern one was called Joash and Jehoash. But now the northern one is also Jehoashing at certain points in the story. Okay. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And, uh, okay, uh, 14 verse 1. In the second year of Joash, the <laughs> son of Jehoahaz. Okay, he's gone back to being Joash now instead of Jehoash. This is the northern one. King of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. Okay, this is king. the other Joash. So again, they're right together in the same verse. There's Joash in the king of, you know, and Amaziah and Jehoahaz. Okay, uh, and then down in verse 8, there's Jehoash, who's from the northern kingdom, son of Jehoahaz. And then Jehoash, the king of Israel, in verse 9, sends to Amaziah, the king of Judah, and gives a message to him. Um, and in verse 11, you've got Jehoash, the king of the north again, and then look at verse 13. They're together again in the same verse. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah. Okay, right. So Amaziah is the son of Jehoash, who's the son of Ahaziah, but the other Jehoash, now they're both Jehoash. It used to be when one was Jehoash, the other one had to be just Joash, but now they're both Jehoash. This is the Bible, you know? This is what the Bible says, Okay. This is what this book is that everybody's fussing about. Okay, now uh, down in verse 15, the rest of the acts of Jehoash and what he did. He sleeps with his fathers. And then look at verse uh, 17. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. Okay, this is the southern one. Lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz. Okay, so now they've changed places. Now the one from Judah is Joash and the one from the north is Jehoash. Okay, verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Oh, now they're both Joash. Cool, they've never both been Joash before. This is very meaningful. You know, they've, they've come together. This is exciting. Um, <laughs> okay, good. And uh, so I, I, I think maybe you get the sense. Let's just read in 15, verse 13. Let's just look at this. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah. Okay, this is Uzziah, king of Judah. Okay, now look down at verse 19. Pool, king of Assyria. Verse 17, I'm sorry. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah. Wait, who was the king of Judah? In as verse 13, a, as a, uh, you said it was Uzziah. Uh -huh. Now, it's in Azariah. only four verses, a remarkable name change. It is now <laughs> Azariah, king of Judah. People in the room here, friends, are pleading with me to stop. It's, it, 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 is, it is too much. It's just too much. So what would I call that? I would say, you know, overlapping names, maybe you might call that just a little bit. You know, uh, 
that thing is amazing. And, and trying to keep, what I had to do finally, was the only reason I can find all this passage, I boxed them all in my scripture, turned some green, some red, wrote north and south next to each one. It, it's impossible to, to keep track of it. You know, what is going on that you'd have these three overlapping names of these three people and to help you out, everybody's name switches back and forth at will, you know. Uh, to me, it's a sign that there's something else going on. Because Swedenborg says that it's very, you know, you know, probably good friends, that Abram in the Old Testament and Sarai, really big deal when an H gets added to their names. He becomes Abraham. It's a big deal. And Sarai becomes Sarah with an H. Big deal. So I'm disinclined to think that it's meaningless when Joash turns into Jehoash or goes back to being Joash. You know, I think there's, it's meaningful. I think this is why the scribes have carefully maintained all these mind-boggling variations in the text, you know, even though it seems like any rookie editor would just straighten that whole thing out, you know. Uh, let's look at Mark. Let's go into the New Testament. So you've got Matthew and Mark. I want to go to Mark chapter 5. The, each one of these, you know, is not earth-shaking or whatever, but they're just, to me, the little signs. And the fact is, when you see, oh, well, this is a sign, and that's a sign. Oh, and this is a sign, that's a sign. That's, you know, it adds up after a while, to my mind. Little and, signs of an inner meeting. What's that? Little signs of an inner meeting. Little signs of an inner meeting. Little signs of something else is going on other than just a straightforward telling of a story. By the way, it goes without saying, and we'll deal with this another time, but none of those lengths of years ever really totally adds up. I mean, people, scholars have to stand on their heads to get the, to get the years to work out because they, whether it's 13 years and then the other one in the south, if you really make a map of it, they, you have to fudge it all over the place to get it to work. Mark chapter 5. At the beginning? <clears throat> Let's say that we will start at the beginning, yes. Okay. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come this out of the boat... Jesus, yep. When he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. Mm. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Okay, this is a very straightforward, a powerful story. We know what's going on. Everything's happening in sequence. Okay, verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Okay, so he, ran, he sees Jesus from a distance. He runs and worships him. Okay. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Now, wait a minute. This is a bizarre thing. When you see someone, do you run and say, Stop tormenting me. You know, why, why would he run over there and say, don't torment me? Oh, well, look at verse 8. For he said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Oh, it's told in the wrong order. Like the guy's reacting before the thing he's reacting to, you've been told about. You see what I'm saying? My grammar is just like that too. And um, so, <laughs> so it's, he comes running off, running to Jesus, worships him, cries out with a loud voice, what have I to do with you? Don't torment me. Oh, and then the test is playing. Like, why is he saying don't torment me? Oh, that's because Jesus said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. It's just an example, but there, it's one that popped to mind. There are countless examples in Scripture of the story being told in technically the wrong order. You know? It just like, if you were really telling the story, why not say, Oh, tell it right. How would that be? You know, the, the guy runs up, Jesus says something, he replies, or something like that. But I would submit that the reason it's given in this order is because it's very meaningful 
what he says and the fact that it comes afterwards is important. Who cares about the time? You know, it's spiritually significant what sequence it happens in. Oh, that's such fun. That's really fun. Okay. How are we doing on our battery level there? Good. We're good. That's great. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Thanks for your prayers, friends. The, uh, it was looking bad before the show, but, uh, but now we're doing all right. Okay. Uh, look at Acts. So turn to the right. Go through the Gospel of John to Acts. Let's get to chapter 20. Again, I say that, but, you know, these are the kind of arguments that, that uh, people who want to tear down Scripture say, see, it's not divine. It's a dumb, poorly edited book. You know, I'm making the opposite argument that there's the reason it's that way is because it's holding, it's sustaining these layers within it. And so it makes a lot of sense on the outside, but not perfect. You know, it's not externally perfect. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 38. I just want to point out a feature that's well known in the, in the, in the book of Acts. There's just one example. So we're starting mid-sentence. Yeah, mid-sentence. Let's just go. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is about Paul. They're saying goodbye to Paul. And, okay, so what do you call that grammatically? That's called the third person. Paul's in the third person. He's going somewhere. They, he, and they. 21 verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed oh, from we. Him, Four times in the book of Acts, it suddenly for a whole block of verses somehow forgets that we were supposed to be theying and heing and stuff, and it wees. It, it does, we did this, we did that, we came to... Without no use of the turn signal. You know, didn't say, oh, I'm shifting into direct discourse here, you know, or anything. No, just suddenly jumps in. We, 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 look at that, down in verse 5. We departed, we went our way, we kneeled down, we took this, verse 7, we, 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 8, there's, we, 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 and uh, we tarried there for many days, and so on, and, uh, and then down in verse 18. Can you read that, dear? On Marina? the following day, Paul went in with us to James. We're still having we and us and everything. And with us, yes. Yep. And all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, them, he told... All of a sudden we're into them. No use of the turn signal. Changing, it's dangerous. Changing lanes without using the turn signal. It happens four times over in the book of Acts that you said, oh, you know, rookie editor would have caught it, you know? So what is that doing there? It, it, there it has a meaningful reason for being in the text. That's what I'm trying to argue. All these little different things. Okay, so if you can't get your third and your first person right, uh, you know, it's a sign that there's more going on in the text than you think. Okay, uh, Revelation chapter 9. Okay, we're all the way in the end of the Bible, and haven't we gone from one end of Scripture to the other? I just love it. It's great fun. Revelation chapter 6, I mean. Chapter 6 is what I want. This is under the heading, Pairs of Things. And I think we could probably have a 4,000-hour Bible study on pairs of things in Scripture. You think the Bible study has been tedious so far? That would be extremely tedious. There are pairs, as Swedenborg points out, the whole thing is just shot through with them. I just wanted to pick one example that came to mind. Let's start at Revelation 6, verse 15. And the kings of the earth... The great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. Okay, you probably could have just hidden in the caves or the rocks of the mountains. Either probably would have been fine. Probably could have just had the mountains without the rocks or something, says the editor. But okay, the caves and the, the rocks of the mountains. Good. And said to the mountains and rocks. And said to the mountains and rocks. Another thing, I didn't include it in my list, but the switcheroo. Like <laughs> pears and the switcheroo. Like you get the rocks and the mountains and then they say, decent editing would have said, 
Say the rocks first the second time because that's what you said. That's, you've created that expectation in the reader. Say rocks and then mountains. It says, they said to the mountains and the rocks, what do they say? Fall on us and hide us. Oh, from fall on us and hide us. From the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Ah, you see, now this is interesting. Who thinks that the caves and the rocks of the mountains are two entirely different things? It's really saying the same thing. Who thinks that fall on us and hide us are two entirely different things? It's saying the same thing. Ah, but everybody thinks the one sitting on the throne and the lamb are two different things. But they're not. It's two, two for one, like your two eyes, you know. Uh, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And some of you heard me. Uh, is disquisite a verb, dear reader? I don't think it is, is it? Disquisite. Can you just disquisite? I don't think you can do that, can you? But I if I did, you I would have been talking to, about the really. fact that the, uh, uh, you really have to be careful around lambs because they are known as very, very angry animals. You know, they'll give you a savage, they just attack those angry lambs, you know? So what is the text doing? It, you know, these people are terrified. They're dying. Save me from the angry lamb. You know, now this is just a literal text, right? We should just take it literally. You know, no, there, it's crying out. No, there's just all these different things in there together. Okay, uh, let's go to, okay, Revelation 5. Let's go to back to 5, uh, verse 8. This is just one example of many. We talked about this a few weeks ago with the parables that a fascinating feature of Scripture is that it will often, t it, it will tell you, I, I'm talking about a parable, and then it will explain the parable, and the language that it uses to explain the parable is quite as mysterious as the parable. And here's, a, 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 I don't know if this is a good example or not, but it's an example that came to mind, verse 8 there. In chapter 5. In chapter 5. Now, when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Okay, incense is the prayers of the saints. It's interesting to me when Scripture will say, this is that. This is that. The incense is... Now, I think of incense as being more or less incense. I don't think of it being anything other than incense, frankly. But they say this incense is the prayers of the saints. So the text is literally saying, here, I'm making two things equivalent. And yet, okay, who exactly are the saints and how is that compared to incense and so on? doesn't explain it thoroughly. Another example in here is Revelation 17. So... Uh, we have heard about this great whore of Babylon that it talks about, and she is, where does it talk about the seven hills in here somewhere, right? Scarlet beast. Yes, okay, well look at verse 9 anyway, that's the one seven, I was trying to get yeah. to. The, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the, women, the woman sits. Okay, so these are the seven heads of the beast, and they are seven mountains. So, the heavens, so in our world, literally, heads do not equal mountains or what, you know, it's not the same thing. Go on. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Okay, that's nice and clear, I think. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> so how many what do we have? What of what? The seven heads are the seven mountains. There are seven kings and five of the kings who have fallen and one is and one isn't happened yet. And there's another one who's an eighth, but he's of the seven. I don't know how you're... <laughs> anything of-ish about the seven if you're the eighth. But anyway, he's eight, and he's, but he's of the seven. Um, okay, 
So, in other words, sometimes the explanation, you know, the cure is worse than the, or whatever. Uh, the, uh, it's another sign of scripture uh, saying that it has an inner meaning. But I would say, good friends, and I want to give you a visual here, perhaps the most powerful indication, uh, you know, when, when you look at a landscape, when a doctor looks at the human body or tries to see what is going on, what are the signs that there's more than meets the eye going on? Well, here is a sign that happens in Scripture. It's a sign that says, I have an inner meaning. That's a sign to me that the text has an inner meaning. And what I'm talking about, if we'll go back to, okay, if you got the four Gospels, you head to the right through Acts and Romans, and you get to 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I want to go to 2nd Corinthians chapter 3. Let's just read verse 6. This whole thing is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But let's read verse 6 right now. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. Thank you for the ellipses. <laughs> Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. The new covenant in the old King James, the New Testament. Yep. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. It's widely assumed that this is referring to scripture itself. Scripture has a letter. Scripture has a spirit. It actually is so bold as to say that the letter kills and the spirit gives life. To me, that's like a big sign that says, I have an inner meaning. In fact, the sign, if you flip it over on the other side, says the inner meaning is more important than the outside. A misunderstanding this is a huge error. You know, I have an inner meaning. And you can tell that it's talking about this because it talks about the way that the ancient Jews would read the Old Testament. Uh, it's referring to them in verse 14 when it says, But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. Okay, that is literally saying there's more under Scripture. I don't know any other way to read it. There's more under Scripture than meets the eye. You know, you can read and read and read. If you don't understand this about Christ, you're not getting it. There's a veil in the way. Go on, next couple of verses. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, that's just crying out that there's a huge meaning underneath it. And if you're just reading the surface, you're not even getting it. And that's why it's talking about the letter kills. Such strong language to say the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And you have a similar statement. Go to the left, get back through John to Luke 24. Second Corinthians, if anybody ever asks you, Second Corinthians chapter 3 and Luke 24 are the most, um, most powerful places to me that just make it very clear that there is something more going on in Scripture than meets the eye. Christ, as you'll remember, appears to these two people walking on the road to Emmaus, mm -hmm. and they say they didn't see the crucifixion coming. <coughs> and he actually chides them in verse 25, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27. Okay, Luke 24, 27. That's right. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So you mean in some passages here and there? All the scriptures. All the, thank you, dear reader. All <laughs> the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That's right. And look at verse 44 when he's talking to a larger group of disciples. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And then what did he do? And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Yeah. So if you need the Lord to open your understanding so that you can comprehend the scriptures, then if you're just reading the outside, there's a whole layer you're not getting. 
It's possible to look at the human body and not see anything that's going on inside it. Possible to look at the Grand Canyon and not see a single thing about what lies underneath it. But, and it's pos very possible to look at Scripture and not see that there's anything underneath there. But the literal, the surface of it is not just sort of, oh, we see a hint here, a hint there. It says, you're not getting anything. The letter is actually killing you if you don't understand that this thing has a deeper meaning. And the Lord opens up their understanding. So they start to see in the scriptures all the things. We read a lot of them. All those things that have to do with the Lord. The creation story, all these, the kings go in the north and the south, and they've all got the same names and, and all of it. It's all about something about the Lord, about his love for us, his desire to save us, uh, all about the change that we have to go through in our hearts and minds to be reborn. Uh, that's what the text is all about. So there are certain signs that there's more to Scripture than meets the eye. I invite you to join us in the coming weeks because we'll be talking about, I just can't wait, uh, things in Scripture that violate the laws of mathematics, the laws of physics, the laws of time and space. And it's going to be a blast. So come on back, friends, and let's close with a prayer, shall we? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the Word made flesh. We thank you, Lord, for showing us perhaps a glimpse that there's more underneath this text than meets the eye. Actually, what is within there is your love and your wisdom, very, very cloaked. You say in Isaiah, over all the glory, there should be a covering. And yet the covering says there's more. There's more than meets the eye. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, so we can see the Lord in there.